This morning's talk um, is called The Ultimate, and that should become clear from the reading of the next poem, which I will start with. I behold what is pure, supreme, unfailing, and am purified by that vision, convinced what you know is ultimate, you believe your view is pure. That a man be purified by visions, his pain overcome by knowledge, his attachments dispelled by others. In stating these views, you betray an opinion. Purity is nothing foreign says the priest, not mired in views and words, ideas and rules, good and evil. He's discarded what he believed and builds nothing here. Dropping one, you clutch the next. Urged urged ahead by self-concern, you reject and adopt opinions as a monkey lets go of a branch and seizes another. You vow to practice alone only to oscillate in the grip of perceptions. The wise suffer no highs and lows having met the Dharma through knowledge and learning. One who takes no issue with things sees what's before his eyes, is open to what is said, acts in tune with what he senses. Who can judge him here? By what measure? He doesn't elaborate, nor does he flatter. He is suspicious of perfection. Having cut the knots that bind, he nurtures no longing for anything. The priest without borders doesn't seize on what he's known or beheld, not passionate, not dispassionate. He doesn't posit anything as ultimate. Before we go on to look at the actual verses themselves, um, I'd just like to to frame this in um, a somewhat uh, more, uh, maybe more familiar context. By um, looking at uh, a couple of passages, one of which you have, uh, the other I'll read to you, um, in which we get some hints as to what um, this poem might be talking about. Uh, An experience that obviously for the writer has deep significance and meaning but rejects particularly in uh, a religious or spiritual context 
uh, much of the language that we would normally expect from those who claim enlightenment and so on. And part of that language, of course, is the language of ultimacy, the language of perfection, the language of purification. All that seems to be rejected. In some ways, I think what we've seen so far is the suggestion that there might be a solitude in which we can abide, which is not arid, but fertile. Although the word fertility is not used, Buddhism always prefers these negatives. Aridity, if you think about it, has as its opposite fertility. Uh, A space in which something is enabled to to be seeded, uh, to be rooted, uh, to grow. So I wonder if one of the themes that runs through these verses is uh, that of a fertile solitude. The, explicitly, you often feel it's just rejecting too much. But I think we keep have to come back to the fact that this rejection, this renunciation, this detachment is, 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 is not an end but a means to an end. By clearing away something, we enable other possibilities to emerge which previously had been suppressed or denied or ignored. The two texts I want to look at are, first of all, uh, the Buddha's, or what is attributed to the Buddha, the account of the awakening we find in the um, Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Discourse on the Noble Quest, which is the 26th of the middle-length discourses, Um, a passage that I I, I often use in in my talks. You've probably heard it before if you've listened to them. Again, this text um, is regarded, by scholars at least, as having a a great antiquity. Um, And it's probably, therefore, the earliest account we have attributed to the Buddha himself of what it meant to wake up, what it meant to... Uh, experience the Dhamma, as he puts it. This is the key passage. Uh, This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, this conditionality, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of grasping, 
desirelessness, stopping, nirvana. Now what we um, have here um, is once again a text that's claiming to describe an awakening, an understanding, an insight that doesn't have recourse to the language of ultimacy or truth. None of these terms occur. It's phrased in very non-cognitive language. In other words, it's not about getting to know something correctly that you achieve this insight, but rather through a shift in perspective, a kind of existential um, uh, movement where you somehow no longer feel bound to what it is that you identify with, your place, be that your ego, be that your position in society, be that your role in a community, be that your uh, nation or your town or your city. Nor does it have to do with the identification you have with a particular set of religious beliefs or political views. These are places which you can live. We cannot, in fact, not live in such spaces. We cannot not be part of society, of community, and so on and so forth. So the question is not that these things are somehow wrong, but we invest too much importance in them, and in doing so, obscure what the text calls our ground. So the Buddha's awakening was a shift from identification and attachment to a place to an openness and uh, an encounter, an embrace, as we've been saying, with the ground of his life itself. And that ground is twofold. On the one hand, it is the, um, the sheer nature of uh, this contingent experience, ida pachayata, this conditionality, this being a deictic pronoun, in other words, pointing to the specific things and moments and events that occur here and now. And the kind of law, if you wish, that underlies that, which is the law of cause and effect, the law of, of contingency, conditionality, how one set of circumstances generates another, which generates another, without having to appeal to anything which is not conditional, which is not part of that almost naturalistic sense of being embodied in a world that is constantly in flux and change. The other aspect of this ground is what is called nirvana. In other words, um, as he describes it here, the stilling of inclinations, inclinations being those impulses, urges to think, say, do something. The relinquishing of bases, these would be things to which we're again attached and invested in. The fading away of grasping or craving, 
stopping nirvana. And I suspect that these two ways in which this ground are described experientially would be one. In other words, we find this uh, possibility of being completely still and quiet and open and aware and in doing so begin to encounter experience prior to our labelling it as this and that, is, is not. All those dualities that the verses are constantly referring to. Now, of course, what happens in the course of these sorts of experiences becoming uh, the dogmas or the doctrines of uh, organized religion um, is that we lose touch or we forget or that quality is almost suppressed, I think, sometimes. We lose touch with the basic simplicity of the experience. And it becomes elevated uh, increasingly over time into something rather elevated and remote and ultimate, more and more out of reach, more and more the exclusive preserve of the experts who happen to be those in power, uh, the priests, the monks, the lamas, the roshis, the ajans, whatever. And that's how religious institutions in all forms tend to operate as uh, structures of power. And I sense, in a way, that uh, the Buddha, whoever he may have been, but certainly the author of these verses, if it, and it may, who knows, it may be the same person, is somehow um, rebelling against that tendency towards institutionalization, towards the positing of ultimates, towards the privileging of truth, and is returning to this primary simplicity that in some senses is, is, is utterly uh, um, imminent, uh, available, uh, present. Yet one of the terms here that I'd like to flag is, that, um, is this term dudasso, hard to see. It's hard to see this, difficult to understand it. Now let's cut to um, the texts which you have in your handout at the very end, which are under the heading to Sivaka, <coughs> sorry, to Sivaka. Sivaka. A fellow called Topknot Sivaka. Molia Sivaka. Sivaka is not a Buddhist, at least when he asks these questions. Um, he's a, a wanderer, a renunciant, someone who comes to the Buddha and poses a couple of questions. And he only occurs twice in the Pali Canon, and those occurrences are first in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, and then hundreds of pages in another volume later, you find him popping up in the Anguttara Nikaya, the the numerical discourses. And what I've done is I've taken those two passages and put them together. Because they, they actually, I think, um, have a common resonance 
um, of someone who's actually asking, a, in a sense, a, a, an obvious question. You know, what's the dharma? What's karma? And getting a very unexpected answer. But let's just look at the second one. You talk of a clearly visible dharma, says Sivaka. In what respect is the dharma clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise? And then the Buddha responds by saying, let me ask you a question about this. Respond as you see fit. What do you think? When there is greed within you, do you know there's greed within me? And when there's no greed within you, do you know there's no greed within me? And Sivaka says, yes. And the Buddha goes on, and with hatred, bewilderment, and those qualities of mind associated with greed and hatred and bewilderment, when they are within you, do you know they are present? And when they are not within you, do you know they are absent? And Sivaka says, yes. And then the Buddha says, it is in this way that the Dhamma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Now, we seem to have a a conflict here. On the one hand, the Buddha is describing the Dharma as hard to see, and in this text, he's describing the Dharma as clearly visible. Now, this sounds paradoxical. It's clearly visible, but it's hard to see. And this, I feel, is a very helpful way of tapping into what the poet of these verses is trying to get at too. Clearly visible, but hard to see. So what does hard to see mean? In what way is it hard? Um, We often might think in a context such as this that it's hard to see this Dhamma because it's it's very difficult to understand it. It's conceptually a uh, little foreign, alien, and complicated, and I have to really struggle hard to th- figure it all out. Hard to see. Another hard way of thinking of hard to see is it's hard to see because it's obscured by something else. And another way of thinking of something being hard to see is that it's actually difficult to look at. Like it's hard to watch pictures of starving children in Africa. That's hard to see too. And in fact the word um, dudaso, daso means to see, a common Pali word, dasati. And du is the same du as in dukkha. And in fact it's only fairly recently that I've realized that the du in dukkha and the su in sukha, which means happiness, are used continuously as meaning like difficult and easy, that opposition. Hard to see, easy to see. Are connected to the idea of, of pain and pleasure. 
suffering and happiness. So we could understand perhaps dudaso as meaning um, it's hard to see in the sense that it's, it's difficult to bear looking at the world in this way. In other words, uh, for example, when the Buddha describes experience as impermanent, as tragic, as contingent, Again, intellectually, we can, you know, we can register those ideas and say, oh, that's interesting. But experientially, it's really rather, uh, or it can be, rather challenging, rather upsetting, uh, rather traumatizing, uh, rather destabilizing to really see that the world we live in is one that's slipping out of our grasp every second, It's plunging towards an end, which is our death. That it's shot through with unpredictability, tragedy, disappointment, pain, which Buddhism goes on and on about all the time. And um, it's also profoundly contingent, uncontrollable, unpredictable, um, really something we find ourselves thrown into only with the only certainty that we're going to be thrown out again. And there's a degree to which we can, of course, manage this situation, some of us better than others. But in the end, it will overwhelm us and will discard us. And to really see that, really, really see that, um, is difficult. Difficult in the sense that it's threatening. It's, uh, it's challenging. It upsets our complacencies and our beliefs, perhaps, in something eternal, something ultimate. So I think it's in this way that the Dharma is hard to see, but it's actually clearly visible. Uh, in other words, this dialogue with Sivaka the Buddha is saying, okay, you want to know about this dharma? Well, look inside your own mind. When there is attachment or greed or hatred or confusion present within you, do you know that? And he says, yes. And when those things are not there, you know that as well. Yeah, of course. Then that's it. That's it. That's the dharma. The fact that you are able to differentiate between a way, a state of being in which is driven by attachment or greed or confusion or hatred and a state of being that isn't. And he's not saying that this is something that requires years and years of long solitary meditation practice and study and da-da-da-da-da. He's saying, no, right now, Sivaka, you're not, not even one of my followers, but you can see that, right? He says, yes, Evan. So it is. And that is the Dhamma. Uh, the Dhamma is, is clearly visible. It's right here in, this, uh, in the space that is open when you recognize that you're not being driven by these impulses and drives and habits and beliefs. That's it. And he calls it akaliko, um, which li- literally means timeless, and it's sometimes translated that way. But Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as immediate, which I think is correct. In other words, it's right here now. 
again, very much like in Zen. Uh, it's, it's a sudden, immediate presence of a possibility right now. It doesn't imply any sense of temporality. In other words, a process of practice or thinking that occurs over time that gets you to a certain result. It's right here. It's immediate. So in that sense, it's clearly visible, but it's hard to see. Hard to see, I would suspect, in the sense that it's rather, it, it, it's rather unsettling. It's rather challenging. It's rather disturbing, perhaps. And there's certainly something I find in these poems uh, that is a bit disturbing. Uh, it's rather bitter medicine. Uh, it, te- it seems as though the poet is constantly trying to sort of pull the rug from out beneath our feet. So let's just go through the poem again now, and I'll, I'll offer just some reflections on it as we go through. So it starts with somebody expressing a, a claim, really. I behold what is pure, supreme, unfailing, and am purified by this vision. Uh, I think the poet is being parodic. He's parodying uh, the enlightened guru, basically. Uh, the person who makes these, ultim- these claims of ultimacy, and thereby having had such... Uh, ultimate experiences believes that they are therefore somehow purified and cleansed of all uh, defilement and confusion and they are enlightened beings. Now clearly the poet doesn't have much truck with these people. (laughs) Convinced what you know is ultimate, you believe your view is pure. And there's a Right through these poems, there is a a suspicion around some key words. Purity, ultimacy are two of them. But of course, we've also had views, opinions, and we'll find some more as as we continue. And then he goes on to say that a man be, that a man be purified, that a person be purified by visions. I mean, here actually the Pali is gendered, the word Man, Manu, is is masculine. That a man be purified by visions, his pain overcome by knowledge, his attachments dispelled by others. Now these are three fairly standard views that we find throughout um, systems of salvation. That by, by, by seeing the world in a certain way, you're somehow purified. By knowing something in a certain way, you'll overcome your suffering. And again, Buddhism would seem, in fact, to be promoting that. If you understand the nature of reality, then that will lead you to the end of suffering. Here he seems to be saying, no, that's just an opinion you have. It's just a view, it's just a concept, a belief. Uh, that if you meet the right teacher or you be part of the right church or community or whatever, then that uh, belonging will allow others or an institution or a community or a saint to dispel your attachments. And again, I think attachments can be broadly 
thought of here as, as, as the sufferings we have, the pains we have. So going to pilgrimage to, to Lourdes or to one of these sites whereby sacred water or something is thrown at you. Maybe that, there may be some efficacy in that, but it's not the sort of um, approach that the author of these poems would uh, really take terribly seriously. In stating these views, you portray an opinion. Again, I'm not entirely sure what that means. But um, I think what it's pointing to is how so easily, let's say, that we, we have a vision in meditation or we, we have a deep insight into something or we find that the presence of a particular teacher somehow um, transforms us. And maybe there are moments in which those things do in fact occur. But the danger is we then turn that experience into a view, a belief. It becomes something that is true for all time. I had this vision and it purified my mind. I had this insight and I overcame suffering, or whatever it might be. So the danger, I think, that he's pointing to is how we are so prone to, uh, to transform what might have been a very genuine moment of understanding and generalize it to some uh, quasi-eternal uh, it- attainment, which is, of course, what we want. We must always be careful of what it is that we want. So the the author tends to be throwing us back, I think, onto the immediacy of what is actually going on. In in earlier cultures, perhaps, um, one could preserve the pretense of the perfection of a teacher, let's say. But nowadays, with the media and with people much more curious to know what's actually going on behind the scenes with this fellow, we find again and again and again that people who set themselves up in this way um, tend to have feet of clay. Uh, There are too many examples and I don't need to go into detail. Uh, And that's one, I think, one of the features of secularity is we're no longer um, so... um, prone or habituated to assume that a priest, for example, is a a spiritual person because of their role or because of what they say or because of the the vibes they send out or something. We're suspicious of those things today. We're suspicious of people who make claims about knowing the ultimate truth. At least I am. But then you have this strange paradox. In the next verse we have Purity is nothing foreign, says the priest not mired in views and words, ideas and rules, good and evil. Purity is nothing foreign. And I think this could be a reference to what, how the Buddha engaged with Sivaka and said, you know when there's no greed within you? Yes. In other words, this absence of greed is nothing foreign. It's not, not some, some sort of elevated or remote or 
um, esoteric state of mind. It's actually with you right now. As soon as your mind calms down, as soon as you settle into a certain stillness and clarity, there you have all that can ever be thought of as, as purity. It's, it's, it's yours. It's not alien to you. And then he lists a whole bunch of terms, and we'll find that these keep recurring. Views, words, uh, the, the word for word in Pali here is sutta, which means what you hear. And it implies actually something a bit like teachings or instructions. So it's not just your own opinions, your views, but also a certain attachment to what other people have said that you then sort of elevate as having a kind of a privileged significance. A bit like what I'm doing with these verses, in fact. I'm giving them a sort of significance. I'm raising them up. Uh, promoting them. But that arguably is part of the problem, at least according to the verses themselves. Ideas, similarly, and this word rules. Now, rules is vata, or bata in Pali, and uh, it's often compounded with the word sila, or precepts, or morality, sila vata, sila bata. Most Buddhist translations will render it um, rites and rituals uh, to sort of conveniently pass it off basically to the Brahmins. But actually the word doesn't just refer to that. It refers to any kind of of rule-based morality. A morality based on following rules. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that whether that's Buddhist or Christian or Brahmin, doesn't make any difference. And this is challenging. And I think Buddhism has traditionally found it very difficult to deal with this kind of idea that rules, even moral rules, even good moral rules, are also another kind of trap. And I think Buddhist ethics... um, develops and evolves according to how it stands in relation to rules. The Vinaya, the monastic rule, is a classical case of a really fixed system of legalistic morality. 253 rules. Shortly before the Buddha died, he famously said to Ananda, "Um, after I have died, you can abolish the minor rules. And Arnold presumably went, okay. But when it got to the first council, and this rather rather dodgy character called Mahakasapa says, um, okay, Ananda, he said we could abandon the minor rules. You then, of course, asked him which ones. And Ananda said, no. (laughs) And then it was decided, well, in that case, we'll keep the lot. (laughs) And so today... You know, two and a half thousand years later, you have monks living in, you know, in Watford. Who, who, <laughs> who are following... Uh, it's Hemel Hempstead, actually. Um, 
who are following a bunch of rules that were laid down in the 5th century BC, and they won't change them. <laughs> Maybe there's something to that, I don't know, but um, <laughs> you should discuss that with them. But there does seem to be here, um, uh, already at a very, very early stage of the, of the tradition, if, we, if we're correct in, in dating this text, um, already a deep suspicion of rules. And this leads, I think, to a morality that's not based on rules um, and, and, and legalistic ideas. This is right, that's wrong, you should do this, you shouldn't do that but a morality that is based on a response to the dynamics of the situation, which we mentioned yesterday. That by somehow letting go of the insistence to categorize is, is not right, wrong, etc., you begin to live your life more from an appreciation of the specificity of the moment and this is, um, I mean, I'm getting a lot of these ideas from uh, what in, Christia- in some Christian movements has been called situational ethics. That um, this is an ethic that is concerned not with what's right and what's wrong, but what is the most loving, what is the most compassionate thing to do in this case. And my own sense is that this uh, letting go of rules is not about abandoning ethics and morality at all, but actually shifting into an ethic that seeks to respond as wisely and as compassionately to the uniqueness of a specific moral dilemma. And that no set of rules, no Uh, theories of morality will ever be able to account for the uniqueness of every moral um, uh, instance where we have to make a decision. And good and evil, I mean this is a translation of uh, punna and papa um, in in Pali. Uh, Punna is often translated as merit and papa, evil, bad, Mara is often called the evil one, Papa. But again, the point is that it's another one of these primary dualities that seems so convenient and seems to accord so neatly with the, uh, the grammar of language that we kind of assume that must be how the world works rather than thinking that these are in a sense you know, conventional views that have, have emerged in different societies but again it's all rather unsettling for you know people who are committed to a certain concept of what is ultimately true and what is right and what is wrong so he's discarded what he believed and builds nothing here builds nothing here he's not interested now in sort of building up another system or another structure But again, this is paradoxical because he clearly has built something here. These poems. He's produced something. Something we're now talking about an awful long time later. 
clearly this is not like Jainism, where the aim of the spiritual practice is literally to stop doing anything, and the Jain uh, saint, uh, at least in its idealized form, is one who just sort of sits there, just not doing anything. Just totally kind of zoned out. And not responding, not doing anything, not creating any more karma. So possibly this is a, uh, a reflection on that sort of tradition, the Indian ascetic tradition about really cutting yourself off. So again, there's a resonance of that. You know, you're letting go of certain beliefs and habits and behaviors and rules and ideas, and you don't build anything, you don't construct anything. But at the same time, you're still doing something. In this case, you're composing a fairly, um, uh, a fairly, um, uh, I think, you know, deeply reflective and uh, illuminating piece of art called poetry. I really do see this as art. What he's doing. Uh, it's very striking this poem that it's it doesn't have what is so common in Buddhist texts, uh, an almost rather repetitive use of words. There's very little repetition in the terminology here, and when a word is repeated, it's done so for a purpose. And at the same time, as I've already pointed out, it's, the author is not interested in a Buddhist polemic. He's not trying to show this is better than the other guy's way of doing things. And again, just, I think, to, to reinforce the, 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 the poetic nature of this text, we have this wonderful metaphor of a monkey. Dropping one, you clutch the next. Urged ahead by self-concern, you reject and adopt opinions as a monkey lets go of a branch and seizes another. You can see it. I mean, this fellow probably was sitting in the forest and looking at the monkeys. And they do have this incredible way of, of, of releasing the branch with sufficient momentum that will swing them onto the next one. And they do it so beautifully and effortlessly. Uh, and yet, from the author's perspective, to no great purpose. They're just sort of doing, doing, doing. And he compares the human tendency to run after and hold on to ideas. And then once you get a little bit bored with that one, you let go of it, and then you latch on to another one. Um, we might compare that today very much with the cult of celebrity, how certain celebrities become ever the person everybody latches on to, and then for whatever reasons lose interest, and then you latch on to the next celebrity. You latch on to the next one. Or, um, to put it a little bit closer to home, the latest fashions in meditation teachers or Buddhist groups or Buddhist texts. I've noticed over the years that there's a sort of faddishness very often. Everybody's, oh, wow, you heard of this guy. Oh, he's great. Everybody goes off there. <laughs> I don't want to be too cynical. But... Um, <laughs> Because often, you know, these things are very good. But th there is a tendency, I think, to just kind of, to sort of go along with what's in the air. And, and, and you see these movements coming and going. 
And the author here, I think, has seen that, and he's comparing it to the monkeys swinging around in the forest. So you vow to practice alone, he says, only to oscillate in the grip of perceptions. This, again, is, a, I think, another echo of the very first verse of the first poem, um, a creature um, concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. And so this is another way of, of refracting that idea. You vow to practice alone, go on some serious, intensive, personal retreat, and what do you do? Well, you just go oscillate. The word in Pali is literally to go up and down. You go up and down in the grip of your perceptions, in other words, your ideas, your views, your fears, your uh, sense of what enlightenment is or whatever, and you just got to get spun around, up and down. Some days are good days, some days are bad days, and you just get stuck there. But the wise, he says, suffer no highs and no lows. In other words, they've somehow, the aim of this practice is to go beyond oscillation, uh, this kind of up and down, this kind of periods of excitement and periods of depression. Again, sounds like a nice idea, but it's not easy to do. But what's curious is he concludes this verse with, the, the, the reason the wise don't suffer highs and lows is because they've met the Dhamma through knowledge and learning. Now knowledge, the word is that they come to some understanding of their own rather than relying upon what they've heard from others or opinions that their understanding is somehow integrated into their experience. But then he also adds on learning. Now this is uh, the term in Pali. Actually, is is, uh, ve- is rooted is connected to the word Veda, the Vedas, Vedaya something or other. And that's odd. That's a very unusual usage. It seems that at this period, we think of the Vedas as the ancient Indian hymns um, that are at the source of Brahmanic civilization. But possibly they simply meant bodies of learning, bodies of knowledge, texts, scriptures, in a more general sense. So I don't think he means he met the Dharma through studying the the Rig Veda. That's unlikely. But it seems that um, at that period, um, Veda was just a, a generic term for a text. So again, he recognizes the value of actually grounding your practice in studying texts and internalizing what they um, show you through making it your own, your own understanding, your own knowledge. So this, I think, is perhaps a flag uh, against saying that, oh, you need to get rid of all views, all opinions, all books, all learning, just chuck it out the window. That doesn't seem to be what he's saying at all. One who takes no issue with things sees what's before his eyes. 
is open to what is said, acts in tune with what he senses. And again, I think here we see that this, this dropping away, this letting go of views and opinions and so on, um, is not an end in itself, that you come to some sort of nothingness, but it actually allows you to see what's before your eyes. That beliefs and opinions, views and so forth, um, serve as a kind of a, a block, a veil, an obstruction, a screen uh, that actually uh, distort what is being felt, what is being experienced as it unfolds in the moment. And again, I want to go back to that text we looked at yesterday with Kachanagota, um, the one who sees the arising of the world with complete intelligence for him there's no, it's not there. There is no world. And the one who sees the ceasing of things with complete intelligence cannot then have recourse to the category, there it is. It's vanishing. It's arising. And so this, I think, is the perspective that opens up by not taking issue with things, not getting caught up in these kinds of polemics and debates and disputes about views, letting that go in order that you can see what's before your eyes. You can be open to what is said. In other words, less filtering, less prejudgment of what's being said acting in tune with what you sense. So what's being pointed to is a a stripping away of of what um, uh, impedes or blocks um, a clarity and openness which allows a somewhat more spontaneous, heartfelt, response to the situation rather than uh, behaving or saying or doing something in a way that accords with your beliefs. And this, I think, is a way of describing the shift, once again, from the third task, experiencing the stopping, which is the precondition for cultivating a way of life. And that, I think, really is the hinge on which the four tasks turn, embracing the situation totally, which leads to a falling away of habitual reactions, which leads to moments in which there's a stillness and there's a clarity which allows another kind of response. That doesn't mean you're always going to get it right, but you're responding now not from preconceived beliefs or views or opinions, but from a sympathy, an empathy, uh, an engagement with what's actually before your eyes, to what's being said, to what you are sensing. 
Who can judge him here? By what measure? How do you actually pin such a person down? There's not nothing you can really sort of latch onto. There's no view or no um, uh, sort of systematic structure of ideas that they represent anymore. He doesn't elaborate. In other words, he doesn't go off onto endless um, explanations and theories and so forth and so on, nor does he flatter. He's not interested in impressing people. And he's suspicious of perfection. In other words, the idea that if you're somehow in an awake, sage-like state, everything you do will be perfect. That too, I feel, is a very questionable assumption. Having cut the knots that bind, he nurtures no longing for anything. Again, that might sound a little idealistic. (laughs) But again, this is how this voice that we're hearing is somehow articulating what the author values, aspires to most deeply. The priest without borders. Uh, again, I'm using instead of the word is Brahmano. Brahmano, uh, Brahmin, actually. But there's a phrase you find that is not even really Brahmanic. Uh, it's Samano Brahmano, uh, the wanderers and the priests. And priest, I think, here just means someone who has some sort of religious function in the community. I don't think it necessarily means at this point um, a Brahmanical priest doing the rituals. It might. It would include those. But my sense is Brahmano is used in a much looser sense. And in fact, he speaks of Brahmano, the priest, in in the same way as he uses the word beggar. The priest means the practitioner, like the beggar means, the practitioner. It's just another generic term for someone who has chosen to live outside the norms of uh, ordinary society. So this priest without borders, the word for border is simha, simha. Uh, Like when you have monastic ordinations, you establish a, a sima, which again suggests that an idea... Uh, a doctrine, a belief, uh, an opinion uh, is necessarily locating you within a certain boundary unavoidably yet here we have the priest without borders like les médecins sans frontières (laughs) so a priest without borders doesn't seize on what's known or what he's known or beheld He's not passionate, but he's not dispassionate either. These categories too don't fit anymore. And he doesn't posit anything as ultimate. So we come back at the last word of the last verse to the idea that kicked off this poem in the first verse. Excuse me, can I just ask, in that last verse, Mm -hmm. is the... 
Well, Brahmano, priest, is probably masculine, yeah. Mm. I, I can check. if you, It would be, I think. That would be gendered. Okay, thank you. Pamano, uh, well, um, what is it? Pamano, uh, pa, no, Parama. Parama, like pa, P-A-R. Uh, no, doesn't. No, that's uh, that Param, that's different. Paramo means a highest, ultimate, like Paramata Satcha. Paramata, Parama, it means highest, ultimate. It's got nothing to do with Paramita. That's Paramita, gone to the other shore. Sorry about that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.